Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I'm your host, and we are co-produced by my pal Tristan Drew. By the way, if you like the show, please hit that subscribe button. Leave us a review and comments on iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts. And give us a shout out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. We'd love to hear from you. Without any ado, our guest today, Mike Madrid, might be best known of late for his work last year with the Lincoln Project. Mike is the principal of, at Grassroots Lab, a full-service PR firm that helps clients with community engagement, online organizing, coalition building, and research using state-of-the-art data metrics, issues, and trend analysis. For over 20 years, Mike personally has been changing the outcomes of political campaigns throughout the country. He graduated from the Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. If so, that sounds familiar, that's where Danny Pletka, our guest last week, uh, that's where she teaches in addition to her work at AEI. But that's where Mike wrote his senior thesis on Latino po politics and the perspectives that po politicization of emerging Latino voter groups in Southwestern states was unique in American history. This became the basis for his pioneering work on Latino communications and outreach strategies in California, Texas, Florida, and nationwide. And he has served as the press secretary for the California Assembly Republican leader and as the political director of the California Republican Party. In 2001, Mike was named as one of America's most influential Hispanics by Hispanic Business Magazine. He's a fellow at the Unruh Institute for Politics at USC and was appointed to the board of directors of the American Association of Political Consultants. And currently Mike serves as the adjunct lecturer on race, class and partisanship at the University of Southern California. And are, are you still the editor and publisher at California City News? It's a, it's a news site dedicated to the best politics, policy, and practices of local government in California. Is it, so is that you? That's me in all of my spare time after that introduction. I've found time to publish uh, another communication to all the city <laughs> mayors and council members in California. So yeah, that's me. I was looking at my intro. I'm like, holy shit, that's a long intro. <laughs> it just means I'm old as I realize I go through these introductions and they get longer and I'm like, oh my God, like I'm just an old man now. That's really what it is. It's not that impressive. Oh man. Well, thank you for coming in. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. This is a real honor for yeah, me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Corey. I've been following your work and just diving in more and more. And now with your, I, every time that you're, uh, you're partnering on politicology, I definitely got to tune in. You, you have a geeky side, just like me. That it really is a stronger side than my, you know, practitioner side. I'm actually kind of, I think, a frustrated academic. I really wanted to be in the classroom. And I really love the research and data and analytical side of campaigns because I think that there is a lot of science to political campaigns. Um, there's also there's also an art form to it, of course. But that that wonky, nerdy side is really, I think, what 
fascinates me, fascinates my partner, Rob uh, Karinkia over at Grassroots Lab, who's down in Long Beach. We're a California firm, but we, we really brought a very data-based analytical approach to campaigns that I think has really revolutionized some of the work, not just in California, but, but even a national contest like we did with the Lincoln Project. Well, I definitely want to dive into some of that in, in a bit, but first, I want, to, I want to get a little bit about your background. You grew up in Southern California? I grew up in Ventura County. Oh, uh, my wow. family moved to Moore Park in 71, back when it was a town of about a little over 3,000 people. And I graduated from Moore Park High School. Um, well, I won't say what year, but it was a long time ago. I'm guessing that you and I graduated about the same time. Probably about the same time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, a little, there's a lot of uh, sentences in our introductions. So yeah, there's, there's, it's, there's some time passed. But I'm a Ventura Countyan. That's where my family has been there since 71. My mother's still there. My sister's uh, still there. And that's kind of where my roots are. Right, right. How early did you know that you wanted to go into politics? Yeah, that's a great question. I was from a family that was very politically aware, but not really politically involved. So, you know, dinner uh, conversations always revolved around politics, whether it was, you know, watching, you know, Walter Cronkite on the news, again, to date myself a little bit, you know, having discussions about whether Vietnam was a war or a conflict, racial justice issues of the time. Um, so politics and history were always something we talked about constantly. My father was always kind of involved with those conversations, and I certainly picked that up from him. I think formally when I realized, okay, like I'm going to do this and really get engaged was probably in the early, early 90s, late 80s, when I just realized, you know what, I, I don't want to be a lawyer. I don't want to be a doctor. I'm going to follow my passion and pursuits. And I thought, you know, like a lot of people that get involved in politics, that maybe someday I would be an elected official because that's the way we view politics when we're not engaged in it. But I realized very quickly I don't want to be running for office. Like those, <laughs> these guys, the men and women are not the ones making the decisions here. It's the, 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 the people they're all listening to are the political consultants. It's not the lobbyists. It's not the, you know, interest groups. It's their political advisors. And those guys, you know, men and women, they're the ones that are, that are driving the direction of the country for better, for worse. And so that was where I really wanted to be involved And that the strategic decision-making, you know, it's a, it's the constant game of chess it's a conflict sport, which I think I liked earlier on in my life. <laughs> it's a little bit, yeah. it's, it's a younger person's game profession. But yeah, that, I think probably my early 20s and in, in that time frame, I kind of realized, okay, this is something I want to do for a living. Yeah. And you, after, I want to talk about Georgetown for in a bit, but you started becoming involved in Republican politics in particular. I'm curious, you mentioned that family was politically aware, but not politically involved. Mm -hmm. How early did your conservative views uh, and, and affiliation start to emerge? And did your family also line up that way? Or did they have react? Did they push back against that? That's a really good question. It's a, it's a, it's a fantastic question, actually. My, um, my father was more conservative than I was, but both economically and socially. But he was also um, a Democrat. You know, we were a Mexican-American family uh, that moved. Uh, my parents moved out of Los Angeles, out of the Echo Park area, before it was gentrified and before it was hipster. I mean, this is when it was, you know, the, the border of the gangs between the white fence and the big top gangs, right? Like, we would go oh, there man. and visit my grandmother in the summer, and you'd have to duck to run across the bridge so that nobody would take shots at you, like, literally. Wow. So I, I grew up with kind of this pristine agricultural small community in Moore Park, which was again, a 10th of the size that it is now. But, but you know, I, I had a very strong um, sense of what urban America was like uh, for Mexican Americans and how distinct that experience was. 
So um, I say that is kind of a wind up by saying my, my, my parents were pretty conservative. They're practicing active Catholics. Um, they were very kind of pick yourself up by your bootstraps sort of people. And, but they're, they were in the Democratic Party. And I remember kind of the dichotomy, even as a young person, specifically in the 84 race, 1984 race between Reagan and Mondale, where my dad was a huge Mondale supporter. And I, I couldn't reconcile it. Like legitimately, I was too young to, and I was going, well, wait a second. You say you support these things. You say you believe these things, but you're voting for this. Like, how is that possible? And so a lot of our conversations got kind of heated and I realized this is kind of fascinating stuff. Like there's certainly emotional drivers and loyalties that drive this, not just necessarily where people line up on issues and it's complex, it's complicated stuff. And it's fascinating stuff for somebody who just loves to, like so many people do love to get into this stuff. It's fascinating. And so, again, a long, long way of saying, I think I've always been pretty conservative. I'm not as ideological, I think, as uh, so many Republicans were in the 80s, um, because the ideology is gone from the Republican Party. There's yeah. no underlying ideology in the Republican Party anymore. But, but my father, my parents were probably more conservative than I was, even though I was raised as a Democrat. And this is important because... To me, I always kind of affiliated with, with Reagan Republicanism. I came of age during that. My first political memories were watching, you know, people putting up yellow ribbons around oak trees during the Carter administration uh, when, our, when our hostages were being held in the Iranian embassy. And I couldn't for the life of me understand why we were this powerful country that was brought to its knees and our people were literally being essentially tortured in an embassy and we couldn't do anything about it or wouldn't do anything about it. And that troubled me deeply. It bothered me. And so when Reaganism came around, there was this sense of, of American exceptionalism, which again, we, we can talk about that and, and, and how that's changed over the course of my lifetime, at least my perceptions of it. But that those ideas, those belief systems were what drove a big part of my involvement, my activism and my, my belief of how America on the foreign stage which we'll get to Georgetown in a second, was really a big part of what drove my sense of republicanness. So more aspirational, shining city on a hill, Reagan. Absolutely aspirational. And it's the one major thing I lament, not just about the Republican Party, but about all of our politics, is I think that politics, if it's going to be a civic virtue, must be aspirational. And I think that we have so completely gotten away from that, regardless of your ideology, regardless of whether you're a Democrat, Republican, independent, the loss of aspirational politics and that in our civic discussion has really, I think, led to the devolution of our discourse and our fragmenting of, of society. And I, it's, I, I'm deeply concerned about it. We've had conversations about this before, Corey, and I'm sure I'll be talking about it a lot over the next decade or two. Well, when it comes to devolution of discourse, I think a lot of the content that I've listened to you, I've listened to dozens, if not hundreds of hours with you and your partners from last year and now your partners this year, and you're, you're raising the bar. Uh, so I, I applaud you for that. You're assuming the intelligence of, of your audience. You're assuming the intelligence of various constituencies that you're speaking to, and you're assuming the basic goodness of folks that you can appeal to the basic goodness, even though even though politics can be a blood sport, you're still assuming the basic virtues of your audience and the basic intelligence of your audience. So I applaud you a great deal for that. Can I, can I mention something on that? Because I, first of all, thank you. That means a lot to me. Um, as somebody who's both kind of, a, of, a, of an observer of the body politic and a practitioner as a political consultant, 
I also don't want to leave the impression that I'm, you know, above getting in the gutter on some of this stuff. Some the Lincoln Project stuff was not intellectual, <laughs> right? <laughs> it was not. We were not necessarily speaking to the better angels of people's nature. We needed to win the damn race. Yeah. And and there is there is oftentimes a conflict in that, and practitioners, in order to win often have to go to a more base level, but I do think it is incumbent upon um, all of us to kind of speak to those better angels. So I'm not going to say I'm, I'm an innocent here. And I, I appreciate what you're saying because I do value, I truly value the intellectual discourse and the aspirational view of who we are and who we need to be and trying to get to the bottom of that, but fully acknowledging my, my participation in, in a sordid business. Yeah. It's, 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 it's not for the faint of heart. It's, and that's just unfortunately the way the way and politics has always been that way. It's not just unique to this moment in time. Well, just to put refine that point a little bit, I appreciate the fact that it, it it's dirty, but it's dirty in the sense that kind of like um, when Bill Belichick and, and Tom Brady had a partnership for the better part of 20 years. Those are arguably two of the most intelligent brains that ever came to the game of football. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of banging each other yeah. and getting in the yeah. dirt and getting dirty and getting bloody once the ball is snapped. So that's kind of how I see what a lot of the Lincoln project did last year. I thought because there's a whole part of my life where I'm working with some of the smartest marketers in the world, some of the, and, and you know, some of those folks. Um, and it was really smart, targeted, creative content that was connecting with people. And sometimes let's face it, you got to connect with people on a very visceral level. So I can respect that, but I don't think it was all, I think that it was, it was principled and it was, it was aimed at a really, really historically critically important objective. So now we mentioned your, your time at Georgetown. I, I want to bring that up for a second. Your thesis at Georgetown explored an assessment on a choice for Latino voter groups between quote, the pursuit of an aggrieved racial minority or a more typical assimilative integration into the broader political and social culture of the United States. So first, can you translate that into somewhat less academic terms? Yeah, well, let me try, okay? Because okay. it's, it's really, I think, it's actually a great question for what happened in 2020 with the Latino vote. Because yeah. you know, for 25 years now, I've been kind of researching exactly the topic you outlined. And for the first half of my career, um, I came back to California. I came back to the West Coast and the Southwest to watch this change in American demography unfold. And now that I'm halfway through my career, the, the beauty is I will be able to spend the latter part of my career watching what that means from a governance perspective and learn from it and hopefully offer some guidance to, to the next generation as to what this is going to mean because we are at a point in American history that is completely unique. We have never been... We have never been a country of non-white European ancestry majority leaving America to a, a you know, a people who are not white. Um, we, we, we have always been a white nation and we're not going to be by the end of our, my, my lifetime. You're probably a lot younger than I am. So, but, you know, we're, we're probably not going to, to experience that. And then there will probably be, never be another generation of Americans uh, that are a white majority. And, and that's significant. 
And so what I was trying to understand was as I was watching the early stages of this demographic of which I was a member, again, being in Southern California, growing up in the 70s and 80s and realizing, okay, by the 2020s and 2030s, America is going to become a non-white nation. What does that mean for the American identity? And how are Latinos going to engage? Will we be very typical, kind of like Italian Americans, for example? Uh, and let me give you a specific, let me give you a very specific example. Um, you know, in the, in the 80s, it was very possible in New York to have a Mario Cuomo, Andrew's father, be governor, yeah. Yeah. and an Alphonse D'Amato as a U.S. senator. One is a Republican, one is a Democrat. Sons of, sons of immigrants, huge, proud, aspirational Italian-Americans. One very conservative, one very progressive. But nobody ever challenged their Italianness because of their politics or their partisanship. You cannot do that as a Mexican-American. There is no conservative Mexican-American politician, for example, to balance out, uh, you know, Javier Becerra, who is just, you know, confirmed today as Health and Human Services Secretary, and Alex Padilla, both of whom are friends. Alex is a good friend. So I don't say this certainly as a pejoratively. I admire Alex, and I think he's going to do phenomenal work. But my, my point here is it's not healthy to have a huge segment of the fastest growing part of American society being identified almost entirely and exclusively with one side of the aisle, the one partisan side, if they're going to be viewed as legitimate. Regardless of your politics, that is not healthy. It's not, sta it's not a stabilizing force in our government or in our country, and it's going to have very dramatic implications. So what I was trying to learn as a young, young man uh, back at Georgetown in the early 90s was, what are the implications of that? What is gonna happen to our democracy when you have such an overwhelming segment of our society politicizing in a way that is uniquely partisan and will that destabilize the two-party system and can, perhaps most importantly, can a people of a non-Western European culture and tradition um, further the aim of the American experiment? So I, look, I don't, I don't know that that's a <laughs> modern parlance or that's <laughs> Joe six pack talk. Sorry about that. That's Those okay. are the things I just, I think about. And I, I guess that's kind of what I, what I was trying to get at as a, like, like all 20 year olds thinking about that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's what I was doing at Georgetown. And did you, some of the conclusions that you draw drew, it sounds like there, a lot of them are even more applicable today than they were 20 years ago. 100% right. And it's fascinating. Again, it's I, I've been very blessed to be able to work with journalists and academics and political practitioners 25 years ago, when these questions were first being asked about California. And now to be asked the same questions and try to extrapolate what we learned in California to say, is this happening in the country? And in some cases, it's yes. In some cases, it's no. In some places, I was exactly right. In others, I was terribly wrong. And so trying to use that experience as a, as a guidepost, um, you know, I, I really view myself as sort of a transitional figure in American political consulting, because as I said, I was born into this place on earth that was just emerging with this demographic that I have a particular expertise and personal background in. By the time I leave this earth, it will have, it will be gone. It's like this mm. perfect timing from 1970 to whenever I go, it will be the perfect transition point of America from a white dominant country to a non-white dominant country led by Latino cosmetic and demographic changes. Yeah. And it's been kind of 
I, I guess for somebody who thinks about these things, it has been just amazing to be able to literally wake up every day and watch America change and be part of that discussion and help guide it. I'm curious if, if you see parallels between the groups you studied in your graduate work and groups of people who were notably overlooked in more recent elections. Uh, you mean with diverse race and ethnic groups? That's part of it, but part of it is what were motivating factors that maybe weren't being taken into consideration or maybe some wrong assumptions about large groups of people if they were identified as large groups of people? Yeah, I mean, anything specifically or do you want me to just kind of riff a little bit here? Yeah, you can riff a little bit. <laughs> All right, let's, let's run with this. So look, I, I, I'm a big believer in that politicization and demography is overwhelmingly, not entirely, but overwhelmingly driven by economic mobility. In other words, the reasons why so many people come from Latin America, Mexico specifically, is they're looking for a better life economically. They're looking to be able to afford to you know, provide for their families first and foremost, and then achieve the American dream, which is you know, kind of move up into the middle class and such. But both parties have been extremely remiss in addressing these issues in a, in a way that is both appealing and attractive and I think um, reflective of where Latinos are at in this. And so what I mean by that is, you know, I became a Republican in large part because, and this is going to sound very strange to listeners, but this Catholic upbringing that I was brought in, brought up in, I was, it was pounded into me, as it is with a lot of young Catholics, that you need to focus on the least among us. How are you helping the poor? How are you helping elevate people out of poverty, right? We focused intensely on poverty. And there was a really big part of social justice theology in Catholicism. It's a very big part, especially in Mexican-American, Latin American um, social justice theology. And, and that was not missed upon me. But my answer was a little bit more data-driven, which is, well, if we could create more economic opportunity and create pathways out for families, could we then ameliorate poverty as opposed to you know, trying to volunteer at the food bank, for example, or provide kind of day-to-day provisions for, for the poor is, is what if we created a pathway up and out um, and, 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 and would, would Latinos um, respond to that? And to me, the Republican Party was much more attractive to that. Again, a lot of because of what I learned at the dining room table I was talking about. Today, where we find ourselves 20 years later is the Republican Party has devolved into essentially a racist nationalist party that is mm. focused on keeping America a white Christian nation. It does have strong economic populist messages, but they're very protectionist, very isolationist uh, messaging. It's build a wall, quit sending our jobs to Mexico, China's the enemy, uh, let's pull out of NATO, let's pull out of our international alliances, let's kind of pull up this drawbridge around America and we can just pretend like it's the 1950s and we'll be stuck in this bubble forever and it will always work. And I don't know, man, maybe we make TV black and white again and we can all just pretend <laughs> like nothing ever happened and we'll all be happy again, right? <laughs> <laughs> and the, the Democratic Party, unfortunately, is kind of like going, it's so focused on, on identity politics. And I don't say that as a, as a right-wing pejorative, by the way, because the biggest practitioner of identity politics is the right. It's the Republican Party. It's just white identity politics, so it doesn't even realize that it's doing it. Yeah. But identity politics is a part of politics, and there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is when that becomes so dominant in the way of thinking that we are viewing what is more oppressive as opposed to uh, what is the solution. And I think that's where the Democratic Party struggles a little bit, is they're really good at, at, at pointing out the victimization and the oppression, very, very poor uh, ability to say, well, here's the remedy to it in a way that works for the broader society. 
again, that's my opinion. I'm sure you'll get blown up for saying that and I'll be thrown <laughs> under some bridge somewhere and I'm used to that. But that, that's my, I believe that neither is right and neither is wrong. I think they're both wrong and they're both right. And that, that, is, that has made, put me in this unique space, I think, in American politics where I work for high profile Democrats and I work for high profile Republicans and I work against the parties when, they're, when they've reached their excesses. And I'm very, very comfortable in that space. In fact, I think that's the way it was supposed to work originally, but now you're either red or blue, you wear that jersey and the other side is, is the evil empire and they need to be destroyed because they're attacking the Republic. So look, I think um, the, the, the party, to answer your question specifically now, and I apologize for the huge windup, <laughs> the political party that will become the dominant party for the next generation in American history will be the party that is able to, to enunciate an aspirational, multiracial, middle-class agenda. The Republican Party has a very difficult time with the multiracial part of that. They do economic populism really well. And that actually has worked with a small number of, of Hispanics, as you saw in the 2020 election. It's worked with African-American males. Immigrant communities actually respond to that. We can talk more about that in a second as to why. But that is working uh, as long as it's largely focused on not being multiracial. The Democratic Party's dilemma is, is the economic part. Yeah. It's the middle class agenda. Like the Democratic Party genuinely believes that a $15 minimum wage is a middle class policy. Like there's nobody making $15 that is in the middle class. Yeah. That's an anti-poverty agenda for sure. Right. And so whenever I talk about this on social media, people go, well, what about healthcare for all? And what about, you know, climate change being good for it? It's like, no, that's not the way the average person who is struggling to get by is thinking. Okay. They're thinking about making the rents. They're thinking about how many more jobs they're going to need to get in order to survive and get by. That is not a policy agenda that the Democratic Party has. In fact, it's viewed by people in that category, that economic strata, as extremely hostile because it is, candidly. And so the Democratic Party has a problem with the economic messaging. It's no longer the party of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, and the Republican Party has a huge problem with the multiracial component. And so until each one of those parties figures out their mess, we're going to see this extreme polarization, this movement away from the center and this dysfunctional devolution of our political discourse that I think you and I have talked about a few times over the course uh, of the past few election cycles. Yeah. One of the regrettable of many regrettable things is that there was an opportunity, I think, for the Republican Party in the post-2008 and then even post-2012 uh, elections. Uh, did, did you follow Paul Ryan's first drafts and presentations on the tax law that eventually became the 2000? It was very different than what actually passed in 2017. But his his early drafts of that were very much focused, like you say, focused on the least of us. So a lot of the critiques I think weren't were like top line critiques and worth exploring. But if you really dug down, it was just a different solution to a common goal of focusing on the least among us and high tide raising all boats. What did you follow that at all? And what, what were some of your takes? Not only did I follow it, but uh, look, and, and, you know, again, history is going to judge Paul Ryan very differently than, than during his exit. Paul Ryan was the last acolyte of Jack Kemp. Jack Kemp, yeah. And Jack Kemp 
was, you know, a compassionate conservative whose, whose view of conservatism was exactly like mine, which is focused on the poor and the disenfranchised. Conservatism doesn't work unless you actively work to engage and bring people along. Otherwise, you, you end up with a libertarian society, and we know that, these, that, that markets, as strong as they are, and I'm a huge believer in free markets as a power for good, but left unregulated completely and untethered, they create extraordinary extremes in society, which aren't good for any society. And Kemp, you know, developed a whole strain of conservatism that was focused on using the power of markets to, as he articulated, lift up the human spirit to provide ownership and a stake in society and let people flourish and build into the middle class. You can argue whether it's right or wrong or whether those policies worked or did not work, but I really don't think that you can question the character of a Jack Kemp and what he was trying to accomplish. That was very appealing to me, especially as a young man who was looking at a lot of the failures which were already present happening on the American left and saying, there's got to be a better way to solve the poverty that I see all around my extended family, the lack of opportunity that is happening in parts of Los Angeles, especially in the Mexican American community. I don't want to live in a society like this. I want to work for a better America. Uh, Paul Ryan, who's my age, essentially, was one of those um, wonky, nerdy acolytes who understood the budget and finances um, of the state, the government's, the, the federal government's finances in a way that very few people do. He's a very intelligent man. He was absolutely an adherent and, and complete acolyte, as I mentioned, of the Jack Kemp agenda. Now, things got dicey later on, as they do in politics with everybody. As you know, the Trump stuff emerged. And remember, Paul Ryan was the first person to say that's racist. What yeah. he's saying is racist. Right. Like that is a textbook definition of racism. And so Paul Ryan is now, you know, vilified because of left-wing, you know, media channels saying, you know, he was this, you know, alt-right, you know, crazy, Breitbart, whatever. And, and I guess you could make those arguments because all Americans do now. <laughs> but properly understood. Paul Ryan got into public service and politics, I think, for all of the right reasons. I think 80, 90% of his career was focused on creating a better society through his own worldview. You can argue whether that was right or wrong, but he was certainly coming from that, from a, from a place of virtue, uh, which is where I've spent my career. So I'm a much bigger fan than most people are of Paul Ryan because I saw his work for 30 years and you're yeah. exactly right. What he was trying to do was ameliorate things like poverty. And there was a doubling down on things like the ownership society and enterprise zones and incentivizing capital to go into poorer communities to build an economy where the left had no answers that worked and where the right didn't care. There were people actually working to try to uh, you know, solve some of these problems. Look, Barack Obama reinstituted enterprise zones. That's a conservative idea. That came from Jack Kemp. That wasn't from the left. It was saying what the left is, is doing isn't working in the poorest of poor communities. Let's do something different to try to build up people and build community and lift people up. That, to me, has always been conservatism. That's where Paul Ryan was. That's where Jack Kemp was. That is a very, very, very small caucus in the Republican Party today. That's really too bad. And and uh, I do have some questions for you about maybe uh, possible steps forward. But first, can you tell us how you first got into politics after Georgetown? How did you break into the business? You know, I, I sent a letter. I wrote a handwritten letter to my congressman saying I want to volunteer. 
And wow. um, I didn't know any other way to do it. I didn't know anybody in politics. So I sent a letter to my congressman and like a week later, I got a phone call and said, hey, do you want to come help us out? And this was uh, going back late 80s, early 90s, where the, the first computer database systems were developed like voter files. You could actually see people's records. This is how far back it goes. <laughs> and I remember getting a call. This is actually kind of funny. I was the only Republican in my household. I turned 18 and I, I couldn't wait. I was, I was one of those nerds that was like, I could not wait to turn 18 because I wanted to vote. I want to register to vote. Like I was that guy, right? Yeah. And so uh, I sent a letter to my congressman and they were kind of like, who are you? Like you're a Mexican family. Everybody's a Democrat, but you're a Republican. You have been for a couple of years. So it's, you're not like this weird spy. You know, what, what do you, <laughs> who are you? Like who's a Latino Republican and what do you, you know, and so that, that began kind of this little journey of working on campaigns. And I ended up meeting, you know, some of the best friends of my life on that campaign that I'm still very much, very, very close to today and still very involved with today. That's amazing. Now, so you made your name in California politics, as well as other states, of course. But as a California Republican, I was curious, what are some of the mistakes that you think California Republicans made that have brought us to this point in state level politics? Oh, geez. I mean, how long do we have on the podcast? <laughs> Look, let me, I'm going to be a little bit nerdy here again, too. And I'll, I'll try to be quick, Corey, because I don't want to bore people to death. But um, the, the, what, what happened to California, uh, most people will say, oh, it was Proposition 187 in the mid-1990s, and they alienated Latino voters. And of course, Latino voters are my area of expertise. But there were really three things that happened. Uh, and they happened in 1989, essentially in 1990, 19, you know, that, that three or four year period right after the fall of the wall. And if you understand these three things, it explains what happened to California specifically and the Republican party's inability to just to adjust to each of these three is what caused the current day dilemma for the party. The first was of course, immigration, the rising exploding number of Latino voters is the Republican party in California took the 187 approach, took the Pete Wilson approach, and Pete's a friend, uh, helped me get started in the business, but it was a huge political mistake to take on that issue the way that it was taken on, both in tone and in substance. And just just for our listeners who don't know, could you tell us what, what Prop 187 was? Well, it reminds me how old I am. A lot of voters don't remember this. Uh, Proposition 187 was a ballot measure in 1994 that would have um, constitutionally uh, denied um, the government services to uh, the undocumented, all all government services. Uh, so your kids could not go to school if they were not documented. You could not get reimbursement for Medicare, for example, and get government-sponsored health care. You couldn't get a driver's license. You couldn't be a functional part of the society from the governor's, government's perspective. Very draconian. But at the time, it hit a nerve, right? There was too much change happening too quickly. And it really divided. Remember, a, a big majority of white Democrats voted for Proposition 187. Again, history is the way of rewriting the way, the way things happen. But the Democratic Party was very different then, as was the Republican Party. There's no question that, that that beginning of that era started the Republican Party down a nationalist trajectory that was very anti-immigrant, anti-Mexican, anti-Latino, and really anti-other. The anti-white stuff really hit home on September 11th. Mm. We can talk about that too. That was more national, but that was when the Republican Party really lost any hope of becoming a, a, a true majority party going forward. But back to California, Proposition 187 happens. 
The other thing that happens is the decline of the manufacturing base, especially the military industrial complex uh, area where, where you're at, Corey. This was a community right next to me in Ventura County. This was the home of Lockheed Martin. This was a home of, of huge, you know, the Santa Clarita Valley was basically non-existent with the exception of a bunch of military bases uh, and some suburban homes and communities around that in the late 80s and 90s. Santa Clarita Valley was very, 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 very different when I was growing up. It was kind of redneck conservative is the way I explained it, uh, because it was, again, very um, manufacturing based. It was very reliant on military construction and infrastructure and manufacturing. And there was work for folks like that. Um, but the entire Southern California economy was really based on the Cold War. This was the home of Boeing. It was the home of, of again, Lockheed Martin. It was the home of, of all of these aerospace industries where we were literally building the infrastructure for the Cold War. Well, when the Cold War ends, massive cutbacks happen and then base closures starts to happen and the shutting down of gazillions of dollars of federal funds starts to affect the economy. And what happens is a lot of these workers that used to live in Southern California moved to places like Arizona and Texas and Colorado, and they start turning those states red. We were literally exporting Republicans after the Cold War, like literally, and they were replaced by Latino voters. But and the third thing that happened, this is very important too, these peculiar little companies but named Apple and yeah. Intel yeah. and uh, start popping up in San Jose. And this new economy starts to bubble up with a very different culture and a very different economic perspective. And each one of those have benefited overwhelmingly the Democratic Party and the Republican Party has absolutely refused to adjust even 25 years later to this dynamic. So the, the modern day California wasn't just about practical political decisions that were bad, although that was true, but what was driving the change what was creating the change, the demography, right? Which I kind of always come back to the science behind what was happening were these three tectonic shifts in our, in our demographics in our economy and in our uh, geography. And so each of those three had, any one of those would have been devastating to the Republican party. All three at the same time was just insurmountable. Right. So I see, I definitely see a parallel to today's national Republican party with the first point that you made about immigration um, with, but more broadly, well, let me ask you this, uh, are there certain mistakes that the California Republicans made that you see Republicans making nationally now? Yeah, it's almost an exact replica of the problems, which is why I'm so confident in what's likely to happen over the next two decades. And I'm very specific about the next two decades because the one, one of the books I'm planning on, on working on is actually going to be titled two decades of fire. And, and here's why. The, the three dynamics I just explained really began in, in like I said, the, the 1989, but it catalyzed politically in 1994 with Proposition 187 and the anti-immigrant experience. If you look at the year 1994 and draw it out to 2013, something else happened in 2013 in California politics that was very significant. Uh, a state assemblyman by the name of Luis Alejo uh, from Salinas, good friend, actually passed uh, a bill allowing the undocumented to have driver's licenses. This was a perpetually controversial bill that was tried to be pushed through for decades, two decades. 
And in 2013, it finally happened, and it happened for two reasons. One is there was a super majority of Democrats, essentially, and a lot of Republicans finally said, you know what, enough, I'm not voting on any more anti-immigrant measures, I'll vote for the bill. The bill passed, it passed pretty overwhelmingly, and from that moment on, there, were no more, there was no more anti-immigrant legislation introduced. Well, the time span between 1994 and 2013 was 19 years. It was essentially 20 years. And it showed 11% of the electorate in 1994 was Hispanic. Mm. It's doubled in those two years, doubled, which is an extremely rapid increase. If you look at 2020, the percentage of the electorate nationally of Latinos is 11%. In 20 years, it's projected to double. And we are about to go through the same demographic, you know, it's the proverbial snake swallowing the elephant, right? It's a huge demographic change extremely rapidly and it has social implications. It will be a torturous, difficult time with a lot of contentiousness, a lot of rising nationalism, a huge white backlash, political extremism and violence will mar the next 20 years. But eventually, as soon as that demographic works its way out, there will be a time of, of peace, of relative peace. We will transition back out of it the same way that California has. I'm not going to make any judgment call on whether the policies are right and wrong. I'm just observing as a student of politics what the demography tells us is likely to happen. Yeah. And just to be fair, I think, you know, you could make, you could make a critique about what the California Democratic Party is doing and, and some of the overreach. Are there certain lessons that we should be drawing from the California Democratic Party's mistakes, if you want to call them that, it doesn't it doesn't look as much like mistakes because they're they're so dominant in this state. Uh, but do you see do you see some of those mistakes being made? What are they, and what can a larger uh, national party learn from that? I think there's absolutely lessons to be learned, and I um, I, I think you characterized it quite well. I don't believe California is a pro-democratic party state. I think it's a very anti-Republican state, which is why I think the recall we're about to face will ultimately be a failure unless there's a Democrat on the ballot, which at this moment in time has not you know, surfaced. If it's just a Trump Republicans running against Gavin Newsom, um, you're not gonna see the governor replaced. It's just not, the, the chances of that are extremely unlikely. But having said that, we've got to be honest about California, right? We, we talk about it like it's this great place. And in, for, for certain demographics, it is an extraordinarily good place. If you're white, college educated, and own a home, California is pretty darn good. If you're neither of those things, uh, it's not. It's a terrible place. Uh, in fact, we have the largest poverty problem in America by a wide stretch. We have the largest income inequality gap in America by a wide stretch. We've got the worst housing and affordability problem by a wide stretch. We've got some of the worst public education in, in America, especially for black and brown kids anywhere in the country. Uh, we were the most segregated by zip code, um, even, even including the deep South. I mean, we, you can tell by zip code what people's race and ethnicity are and what their income levels are and, and increasingly their lifespan, okay? Because of what environmental factors they'll face by the lack of uh, access to good food, by the by poverty rates and the inability to buy anything but you know a happy meal for your kids. All of these things are indicative of a society that is very unhealthy. California is not working for most Californians. It's why you're seeing an exodus of people leaving. As I mentioned earlier, in the late uh, 80s, early 90s, we saw an exodus. We were exporting Republicans. Now we're exporting Democrats because of affordability problems. We don't have a middle class in California anymore. And this isn't by chance. This was by design. 
okay? We made policy choices as a Democratic Party state that punished the manufacturing industry. So as I mentioned earlier, right after the end of the Cold War, when places like Santa Clarita Valley were heavily reliant on the military industrial complex, what you saw was a collapse of those communities in those areas for a couple of years. The Santa Clarita Valley was actually kind of exceptional in that it had cheap real estate that was very expansive. So it was able to build a new economy kind of of the McMansion, Southern California sprawl, right? Where people who commuted and really worked in LA could live in the Santa Clarita Valley. It was the last kind of major suburban area. And that's why you see such an affluent community. But if you look at the San Gabriel Valley, mm. if you look at places like um, even parts of South Central and the surrounding areas or the San Fernando Valley, you see a very different look and feel than you saw in the 1970s and 1980s. And what you have is a very wealthy West side and a very poor pretty much everywhere else. Yeah. LA County is nice if you live west of the four, you know, five freeway, 405, or if you, you know, if you live on the beach communities or up a hill. If you live in Pasadena or if you live in Santa Clarita, life is pretty good. Yeah. Everywhere else kind of sucks. Okay. It's expensive. There's a lot of pollution. Crime is through the roof. Homelessness is ridiculous, right? And it's—I it, think it's—it's—it's it's, it's intellectually dishonest to say that there are not policy results of decisions that we made that got us here. There, yeah. of course, there are. Yeah. Especially if you're a believer in government, right? As Democrats are, how can you then? You have to. It's a real detachment to say, "Oh, this is Prop 13," or "This was when Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor." Like you got to be in real deep denial to say that most of this isn't the outcome of bad policy choices because it is. Right. This is fixable. Okay. You had to try really, really hard to screw up the middle class in California in the 70s and the 80s. You had to try really hard, and we did. We were successful. California did a really good job of screwing up the state for middle class and working class people. It is not easy in California. It's extremely hard for even people in the professional class, so let alone the working class. And that's that's really lamentable because our society in California is really starting to look like societies that have collapsed in the past. It's starting to look a lot like South Africa, candidly, where there are fewer and fewer people of one race and ethnicity, overwhelmingly white, who have more and more and more growing a bottom of the pyramid, which with people having less and less and less that are increasingly black and brown. That, that story doesn't end well, and yeah. it's not a coincidence. This is happening for a reason, and we're beginning to see some of those in places um, in, in other parts of the country that perhaps could leave this unfortunate precursor as a way America will look as the dominance of one party starts to take hold and we begin to lose the competition of ideas as the Republican Party essentially makes itself irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah. For the record, I, I am a fan of our state senator, Scott Wilk, who's one of the very few Republican leaders. Uh, in fact, I think he's the minority leader in the state Senate right now. But um, he's he's atypical. You know, his he, he's made a point of building a staff that's as diverse as his district. So that that says something. Um, some of the policies he's able to reach across the aisle, you know, the the mine that has been a fight for at least twenty years in in our district is is a big issue. But he's able to work with Democrats. I like to think that he's a green shoot 
of maybe what a either a new Republican Party or a third party. I, I don't know how realistic a third party would be. But a lot of your criticism about the California Democratic Party is what Mike Garcia, our U.S. congressman, has been talking about that he doesn't want to nationalize a lot of the uh, a lot of the mistakes that he sees the California Democratic Party has made, but he has a particular style. He it's sort of that critique is dressed in very Trumpian clothes, like Trumpian language. You know, he can't he can't seem to utter a sentence without absolutely vilifying anyone who isn't part of his not just the Republican Party, but his caucus, his wing of the Republican Party. Right. Um, do you see? Are you paying attention to, to Mike Garcia's and, and, and what he's up to? I pay, I pay attention to a lot of them. Just for the record, I mean, I've known Scott Wilk since 1996, and I share your sentiment about him. I, I'm a big fan of Scott's. I knew him when he was a staffer, and I think he's done a really good job, not just in his legislative career, but I was also very, very publicly critical of his predecessor and thought that she should be removed and Scott should replace her. And I, I, have, I have high expectations. I think he's a, he's a good man, and he, he, um, he gets it, and he's trying to do the right thing. Uh, I don't know Mike Garcia. I know that district extremely well. And I do see a lot of those, you know, he's, they all say they don't want it nationalized. And then they go back to DC, get off at, uh, you know, Reagan International Airport and start, you know, nationalizing everything. I, to me, any Republican who uh, voted Mm -hmm. um, against the impeachment uh, of of the president. Oh, don't get me started, man. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) to me, that's just a non-starter. Like if, if you're acting against the very basic core of our country, you have lost the right to serve in office. Like you just don't have the, the credibility or the cachet. And candidly, everything should be viewed through that lens. And so beyond that, I mean, the rest is, is of no consequence to me. I don't think, I think Mike Garcia's profile, his demographic profile, I think is is perfect for what the Republican Party could be. I think his tone, I think his substance, I think his voting record are exactly the wrong place to be in order to start building towards a permanent uh, majority. I don't, I don't think that that's right. Now, having said that, we're going to have new lines uh, coming up in the next couple of years. And historically, and I, I do believe history is at least a good guide, um, although it doesn't always repeat, you know, it, it should benefit the Republicans. And um, we'll see what happens. I, but like I said, he's a very strong candidate, at least from, from 30,000 foot level. But Anybody who was complicit in supporting and actively voting for Donald Trump and Trumpism, I think, should is is candidly a cancer on our democracy, and he should be removed, and should never be elected to, to anything, um, not even dog catcher. Yeah, yeah, no, you know my thoughts on that. He he only won by one tenth of one percent, and look, I get it. Elections have consequences, but you would think that he would pay attention to the fact that this is indeed a purple district. Now, you you probably know the numbers. Well, you certainly know the number better than I do. I was under the impression that California 25 was actually Democrat plus five or Democrat plus six. Am I wrong about that? No, well, I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but that may, I think that's probably right. Again, you know, we, we look at those numbers a little bit differently because there's such a turnout advantage for Republicans anyway. A, a Democrat plus five seat, especially with the number of no party preference voters, is actually probably a you know, very competitive Republican or state, even sometimes a state Republican seat. There just aren't that many 
that are that, you know, there that are, that are at that level anymore. When I was a kid growing up, there were, you know, 25 of those seats, 25 competitive seats. Now they're all D plus 12, right? Yeah. And, and, and the plus is, is getting bigger. So it might be, but like I said, all of the trend lines are moving in that direction anyway. This is not a re- growing Republican seat. There's no such animal, not in California, uh, nowhere outside the Rust Belt or the Midwest and in some parts of the South. Is there any growing Republican Party? Yeah, it's just not happening. I'll be very curious to see how the lines are redrawn. Uh, but it seems like I maybe I'm wrong. But I, I if the lines are going to include an area like Northridge in addition to Simi Valley and Antelope mm-hmm. Valley, it seems like it would skew even more Democratic. But I wouldn't feel that that aside. I wouldn't feel as passionately about the 2022 race for this seat for California 25 if we had a Scott Wilk type Republican in that seat. But the fact that you had someone who voted to oppose the electoral college votes of Cal- of um, Arizona and Pennsylvania, the fact that you had someone who voted to keep Marjorie Taylor Greene on the education committee, the education committee, that that I just can't, We she, she was duly elected by Georgia's 14th. I get it. They weren't voting her out of Congress. They were voting her off of the education committee, a woman who who thought it was perfectly appropriate. And and indeed, you know, by her disposition, thought she was being heroic by stalking and harassing a young a kid, a teenager who just lost 17 of his of his classmates and and teachers. So that's um. but yeah, like I said, don't don't get me started on that. Um, But how early did you start to see? the Republican party going in a direction that was just so opposed to your actual conservative principles. Uh, you know, look, I, I think honestly, almost right away, um, I just always believed, and I'm, you know, completely guilty of probably of, of conscious self-denial here. I just, I thought most of this was just kind of the crazy activist nonsense that you saw in the dark shadows of the Republican convention. I'm not going to suggest I wasn't aware that there was an overt racism in the Republican Party. There absolutely was. It was evidence to me on day one. I used to remember getting, you know, people calling or emailing me as I was the political director of the California Republican Party in the late 1990s. And people would send me notes saying, go back to the country that you came from. You know, if you're not going to, you know, if you're going to support those illegal aliens um, that are probably in your family, you shouldn't be here either, you know, get your stuff and leave kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, wow. th- that, that was, that was part and parcel of my job. So I, was I aware of it? Yes. It was not until, uh, 20, 2001, September 11th, when the tone and rhetoric of the party changed dramatically. Remember, and I did, I did work on the George W. Bush campaign in 2000. I did a lot of the Latino components of it was some of the most successful work I've ever done nationally up until the Lincoln Project, we're getting rid of Trump. But, you know, I was a young, you know, idealistic kid. I was doing some really phenomenal work and uh, we were successful. And I was planning actually on moving to Washington because we were going to get immigration reform done. And George W. Bush, remember, ran as kind of this pro-Mexican yeah. Republican. He's a Texan. We ran amazing ads in Spanish. He had a huge network in the Latino community nationally. I remember at one point he said, if, if, if you give me someone who's willing to walk 300 miles on foot to get, to get here, you know, essentially for a job interview and a new opportunity, I, I want that guy working with me. <laughs> it's a great line. I'm glad it stuck with you. The, the line was, was essentially 
anybody who's willing to walk across 300 miles of desert to work for minimum wage is somebody I want working in Texas. Yeah. And it's exactly right. It's exactly the type of people that we need to build the, the, the foundation of, of American, the American work ethic. Yeah. Nobody else is going to do that. Right. You're not going to get a bunch of college graduates from Ivy league institutions willing to do that, to get their work started. Like that's not the way it works. And, and that was the sentiment. Now everything changed when those towers came down. Yeah. Uh, America became a much more fearful nation. We, what we became, uh, there was no appetite in the Republican party to do immigration reform and allow people that were non-white into the country. Uh, it didn't matter who they were, or where they were from. It was like, we're done. That's when the build the wall mentality really started to emerge and emanate. And I think looking back with, you know, 20 years of history as, 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 a, as a benefit now, it's when I realized that America was a much more fragile, we have a much more fragile ego than I ever knew is we were, we were, uh, we've been protected by two mighty oceans, but once we are hit, our re reaction and overreaction um, was extraordinary. And the, the idea that we could somehow build a wall and protect ourselves when the oceans did not really took root. And there was no way the Republican Party was ever going to be part of a solution to address the immigration reform problem. So Bush never talked about it again. That's uh, interesting. 18 never... months into his administration, eight-year administration, that we, there was never any talk about doing immigration reform again. I never thought of it quite that way. That's a really interesting way to think of it. Yeah, we, we became a very different nation after 9-11. And it was not just the wars in the Middle East, although that was a part of it, right? It was finding a need to have a, a conflict somewhere in the desert of the Middle East where we could show and bomb the crap out of shit to show that how badass we were. Sorry, I know it's a family show. But we also... We, we, also, no, we, we get the right rating, so we're good to go. <laughs> okay. So, But we also became a very fearful nation of being a non-white country, Um in, in a really dramatic way. And so that that in large part is why immigration reform has not happened since. And I yeah. think it's gonna be very difficult to get Republicans there. I think it's possible now, actually, because you saw Hispanics moving towards the Republican party, or at least towards Donald Trump, um, which is a big wake up call to the Democrats. And I think both parties see opportunity with the Latino vote. And I think that either the chance of actually getting a, a comprehensive reform plan done are actually considerable. I think it can get done. Mm. You know, we talked a little bit about your formative years when you were first forming your conservative positions and what that cost you, that that, that was an outlier for your, your family, the, the folks that you grew up with. What is, your, what is your vocal criticism and subsequent involvement in the Lincoln Project and the work that you're doing now? What's that cost you career-wise and personally? That's a great question too. I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I just need a, a lot more investment in therapy or something. I, I guess I keep finding myself in these places where I'm not really wanted or never belonged in the first place, perhaps. I mean, look, the setup to that question is actually really fantastic because to be a Latino Republican doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I, it, it arguably did back in the 80s and 90s when I became one, and there was a Jack Kemp strain of this stuff, and there was there was this attempt to kind of get um, to build something more proactive. As it became more nativist, as the party became more nativist and nationalist, the Republican Party in California, by the way, is 80% white, 80% mm. white, in a state that is only 34% white. 
I mean, that's crazy. Those yeah. are just crazy numbers. Right. Um, and it tells you everything you need to know about, about the modern Republican Party. And I was talking with a friend the other day about, you know, never feeling quite comfortable in either home, right? My Mexican Latino identity, being a Republican, there's people in the community that are kind of like, are you really like down with us? And then you go to the Republican Party convention, they're kind of like, you're like a Latino guy, like, are you really down with us? And and for me, they're they're actually they they make perfect sense. Now it's easy because I'm in my own skin and I understand how I got here. Explaining it to other people is probably a little bit more complicated. But I think what happened in the Trump era was there was finally a breaking point where Donald Trump did what he did to so many of us. He made us make a decision on basically everything. There was yeah. no gray area. Right. We had to decide on football. Right. <laughs> we had to decide on a on a pandemic. I mean, my God, sixth grade science. Like, if you're a Republican, you don't wear a mask. Like, this is all a big hoax. Right. So it's just, it's ridiculous. But everything required a decision, and we we were all forced to take a side. And essentially, what he did was he demanded that I choose between my Latino ethnicity and and identity, who I am biologically. And my belief system, which is my republicanness, and he said, you got to make a choice. And, and that really wasn't much a, a real difficult decision. It was like, this is really simple. Like if you're going to, Donald Trump attacked a lot of people, a lot of people throughout the course of his life, but specifically his presidency. But the first people he attacked when he announced for president were Mexicans. Right. When he came down that escalator, the first people he came after, like, this is this is who I'm going to be. This is going to be my tone, my substance, and the way I'm going to come at this race was by going after Mexicans. And there's something deeply visceral and personal. And so at that point, you've got to make a decision because you can't, in all honesty, if you're going to have any integrity, I think, have any other position. Now, I mean, I've got friends who have, but I think I'm I'm embarrassed for them and I'm sad for them because what they have had to look in the mirror and endure to continue to be a Republican when somebody's so overtly racist against mm. people of your race and ethnicity, it's really kind of pathetic in my view. And to reconcile that, I think even if you can do it for your own personal benefit and gain, the, the damage it's done to the community, the broader Latino community, which is such a necessary component of what America is going to be going forward is, is it's just not forgivable. It's just sad. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you and I share a similar trajectory. My family politically was a lot like, uh, you might remember the show, Fa Family Ties. Was that the one with Michael J. Fox? Alex Keaton. Yeah, so I identified as the Alex P. Keaton in a family of, you know, yeah. left wing. Yeah, very similar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in theological, my family is very observant. Uh, we're observant Jews, but I became a Christian a couple decades ago, right about the time that, that Bush was running for his, his first term as president. And the churches, even though I was conservative theologically, became a Christian, conservative politically, I found myself feeling somewhat like a resident alien in the churches that I went to, because I still, I still understood and even identified with the people that I grew up with, even though some of my politics and some of the people that I voted for were a yeah. little bit different. So yeah. to get those questions like, so why do all you Jews, you know, dot, dot, dot. I'm like, right. well, I'm speaking for all Jews of all time. Exactly. Like, <laughs> right. You know, and, and the, yeah. And that's a profoundly, I don't even want to say it's an American experience. I think it's becoming one, but it's a very California experience. I'm not too sure where you grew up in. I grew up in Jersey, central Jersey. 
Okay, well, there you go. I mean, Jersey, New York, those, those are quintessential experiences of diverse areas and diverse communities. These conversations have not been happening in a meaningful way in the Midwest and in the Sun Belt and in the South. They are now. They are now. But this was really, for people of our generation, these were coastal dynamics, right? New York's you know, one of the most diverse places on, on, in the country, as is Los Angeles. So to grow up without that question would have been anomalous. So mm. our experiences, I think, uniquely prepare us to have an understanding of what people are really saying when they're asking those questions, it, even if it means it's offensive or not offensive. Like we know right away, like where yeah. somebody's coming from, you just intuitively know, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, and so that dynamic is just now happening in a large swath of, of largely red America. And there's a lot of fear about it. There's a lot of fear about it. You know, when yeah. you start to see Joe's hardware store turn into, you know, the Guadalajara taqueria, you start going, wait a second. You know, I feel like I'm a foreigner in their land suddenly. And what, what, what's happening to America? Because if America is not a white Christian nation, is it really America? Right. That's where it ties into what you said before about this defensiveness or insecurity that somehow building a wall, this imaginary idea that building a wall and getting the bad guys, you know, those rapists and drug dealers to pay for mm -hmm. it. Uh, that's mm -hmm. where that resonated. But yeah, also the, the upbringing with you, um, a very observant Catholic home, my very observant Jewish home, I recognized right away. I was, I was prepared um, morally to recognize the, to recognize Trump for what he was. Yeah. The second he opened his mouth, when, as soon as I'm getting a little bit off topic here, but it's worth mentioning that I became really concerned. I thought that it would go very much the way that the 2012 primary would go, where eventually it would shake out and a Romney Ryan type ticket would emerge. Mm -hmm. But when Trump went down on the escalator, that's not maybe the best way to put it, but you know what I mean. And then yep. a couple months later, he said what he said about John McCain and he was still at the top of the polls. Yeah for weeks yeah. afterwards and, and just sustained through the entire primary. As soon as he said that about McCain and he didn't drop in the polls, he didn't fall off a cliff. I said, uh Oh, we're in trouble. We're not going to have a nominee. We're, we're, you know, and there were literally 14 or 15 nominees that I would have voted for in that election over Hillary. But I, there was no way because, because at the end of the day, I mean, you know, I don't know if, if you're a, a Bible thumper like me, but man, like you, you can't open a, you can practically open any page of the Bible and it's a testimony against Donald Trump. You know, mm -hmm. we've talked a yeah. lot, a lot about it on this show. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. He's none of those things. No. You know, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. He's on the wrong end of that ledger. And now what I see is he's created an entire culture uh, or a subculture where that those those virtues or anti-virtues are celebrated you see it in every comment someone makes on a on a thread um you see it in and even mike garcia who's listen the guy has i respect the guy's background he went to annapolis he he fought for the country he was willing to lay down his life for you know for his country that 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 sense of self-sacrifice and that that bravery is so admirable but when he sends out a tweet even subtle ones, like when he when he refers to the quote unquote Democrat Party, or um, doesn't even refer to the Democrat Party quote unquote, but says um, re refers to socialism and Marxism, where he's vilifying, it's it's playing into this subculture of anti virtues. Like I said, 
Yeah. So I, sorry, I'm going off on a tangent here. No, but that's it's a good discussion. I, I mean, it's important because that's kind of where we're we're all heading. And there, it look, it's just a very different part. Look, I don't I don't really view the Republican Party as a party anymore. The, it, without an ideological underpinning and this frightening fealty to a leader, it's a gang. It, yeah. That's that's all it is. If you don't have political parties, exist to give us a philosophy of governance a philosophy of, of what government should be and what it's trying to accomplish and how it's going to do that. You can debate about tax policy and you can debate everything under that rubric, but once you don't have a philosophy, it's simply about one person, only I can fix it. Now we're, now we're talking about a threat to democracy. Now yeah. we're talking about a threat to the, 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 a system that, that is based on ideas and it becomes literally a gang. And to, sh to see somebody with military background who, who has served to protect the Constitution, then vote to undermine it? Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I don't respect that at all. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's, it's extremely dangerous, and I think that it's extraordinarily problematic, and it's heartbreaking to see that somebody who has served this country then has actually taken a much more powerful act to undermine it. Yeah. This is all very depressing, but so I, I have a few <laughs> quick hits here for you. Uh, it's kind of like fantasy league politics, <laughs> you know, fantasy league geeks for sports. Um, so you're, you're a numbers guy. You're the guy that quote unquote eats numbers for breakfast. <laughs> what are some ways there was a lot of talk about polls in the prior election um, and, and the last few cycles, actually, what are some, what are some things that you look for that tell you, okay, this is a good poll. This is not a good poll. This is a really great question, uh, and, and it is. Um, let me tell you how a practitioner like myself looks at it, because there's a lot more polls now than there ever have been. A couple things I'm going to use as a setup, uh, as a as a precursor. The first is in 2016 when the polls were quote unquote wrong. You have to remember that most of the national polls were actually dead on accurate, right? They were saying Hillary Clinton was going to win by two or three. That's I was going to say that's a bullshit. You know that yeah, it was yeah, just yeah. a talking point. But if you actually studied the polls, they were actually pretty. Dead yeah. There were a few that were off, uh, yeah. but within a reasonable, historically reasonable um, margin of error. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, there was in, in battleground states, there was an overperformance of non-college educated whites, which did skew some of the battleground polls into a uh, framework that was more Trump than Hillary and helped explain that. Yeah, we actually most of the pollsters adjusted that for 2020, but he still overperformed even beyond that, which is really remarkable. Meaning a lot of these polls, which accurately predicted the national outcome again, were still wrong in some of these other states. Now, this is a function of the Electoral College. You can't have a poll that accurately reflects the national popular mood along with a state-by-state -state look without doing significant oversampling, as it's called. All of this is to say most of the polling that you are people are looking at is not designed for the outcomes that people are hoping to get out of them, if that makes any sense. If it doesn't, then what you need to do is focus on your own measurements, our own polling, our own analytic work, and, and ignore essentially some of the public polling because it's not designed to give you what you want. What most polls that are done for public consumption are designed to put out there 
to show what we call a horse race poll. Mm, right. And any right. practitioner, somebody like me who's making spending decisions and making allocations and 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 making you know message uh, decisions, is not looking at the horse race. It's an interesting data point, but what we're looking for is something what we call the cross tabulations or the cross tabs. That's going to give us the movement that we need and the trajectory we need to get to where we need to go based off of the model that we've built for that number of voters that are going to actually show up. So as somebody who's actually doing races, it, I guess it's an interesting aside. We have to follow the public polls because they're part of the media narrative that's designed, but we're not following that as a guideline for what it is that we're actually looking at to affect the outcome of the race. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. It, and and there's, you know, uh, there are heroes and villains that that end up like um, Trafalgar was one that really just annoyed the shit out of me for the last five years. Because he's he's like that guy that trips and spills some chips on double zero, double zero hits. And he yeah. acts like he's the genius of, of yeah. the world. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But 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 when, when you dig into to the numbers, he starts taking like especially polls that he 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 actually did get wrong he starts taking away the cross tabs you you can't you can't really see his methodologies unless there's there's one that he really wants everybody to see to make him look like the genius that he's not i, I wish trafalgar was like relegated back to like a character in the hobbit or something like that i mean <laughs> yeah, yeah and i will say this though you know at the lincoln project we did very 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 little polling and i think this is really going to define the future of campaigns and here's why in any election, I can tell you with 85% certainty how 85% of the voters are going to vote, whether it's California 25 or whether it's the entire country. 85% mm. of partisans are going to vote with their party regardless. And the demographics of unaffiliated voters, meaning independent voters or no party preference voters, are going to basically match up the same way. That means there's 15% of the vote, the electorate that is actually movable. And I think that's generous. I think it's actually more like seven, 8%, okay? Even in California, 25? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think it's pretty much everywhere. I'm looking for a single digit demographic in every race that I do. And what I'm trying to do is discern what the message matrix is that's going to actually move those voters. And that's why horse race polls mean absolutely nothing to me. They don't mean anything. I mean, they're, they're, I shouldn't say that. They're, they're an interesting data point to, to, to help me give color and context to the narrative. But when I'm running a race, that's not at all what I'm looking at. And I think people are making a big mistake if they do. I think it actually makes people very anxious and very scared too when they look at those or very you know uh, uh, inappropriately euphoric about what's going on. Their polls are not designed to do what we are using them for. Anyway, that's that, we can set that aside. We don't want to go too deep down that rabbit hole. But when you start, I love polls, so we could talk about this all day. Oh yeah, well we can keep talking about it if you want to. But the single digits, when you start getting to single digit uh, numbers, demographics, there's no reason to do anything other than poll just that demographic. In other words, if we're talking about Hispanic women between 35 and 45, if that you know that make over 150 thousand dollars a year. If that's the demographic that we've identified as the swing demographic, then we should pull just women with of that demographic, not all of CA25 or not the entire country. Just pull that, those women and let's do a deep dive and figure out what the message is that's going to get us to the trajectory we need to, to get in the win column. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you're, you're assuming that 85% realistically more are just not persuadable voters. So yeah, you're taking it's somewhere between 5 yeah. and 15% that are actually persuadable. So identifying groups of of people that 
where where is their their head at what what are they prioritizing what's important to them are they worried about the votes on january 6th and 7th or are they worried about are they really pleased about um you know getting the 1400 dollars checks or what are they going to be thinking about in 2022 when they actually vote that's exactly right and let me bring this home on something very relevant with what you just said it's why when the democrats right now are talking about the 1400 dollars check that's motivating to their base the swing voters for Republicans are far more interested in Mr. Potato Head and Dr. Seuss. I'm not kidding. No, I'm not. I'm not kidding. I'm being very serious. I know that it's sad. Yeah, but that's that is what they're more worried about: loss of cultural identity and the imposition of social change from the Democrats than they are 1,400 bucks. It's very important to understand. So. While the Democrat, and this is what I learned, uh, not just with the Lincoln Project, but working with Democrats too, is I've, again, worked at the very highest levels of both Democratic and Republican campaigns. There's a very different way that, that Democrats and Republicans approach campaigns. Democrats believe that if you solve the problems, you're going to win the campaign. That the best way to win the hearts and minds of voters is to actually have solutions, which is understandable. Yeah. Republicans, as I say, are really more interested in winning the race. And I don't say that as one is better than the other because both have worked in different instances, but those are the way that they approach it. So when Republicans are talking about these cultural indicators, whatever they are, transgender bathrooms or or Dr. Seuss. Yeah, it was abortion for a long time, abortion. Yeah, and, uh, what, what they're speaking to yeah. and reinforcing is the cultural changes that are driving the fear mm. of these voters that are far more important than getting a $1,400 check, even if they can't make the rent. Mm. Got it? That makes so much sense. And, and so and so, what's happening is the Republicans are, are actually, it looks ridiculous to the average Democrat or CNN or MSNBC watcher, but what they're doing is actually consolidating their base. They're reconstituting and reconstructing their base after the Trump laws. And so when you understand it from that perspective, you what they're not talking to 85% of Americans, they're talking to single digit swing voters that they've identified in their research that are going to get them where they need to go. And that's, that is what the art of the modern campaign is. It's very different. When I was young in Ventura County in the early 90s, the idea was there's a third of the voters are going to vote for you. A third are going to vote against you. You got to find a third of the voters that will swing. And there were Reagan Democrats, which you don't hear that term anymore. There's no <laughs> such thing as a, you know, there's this idea of a Biden Republican, which were really Lincoln Project Republicans that were offended by the cultural discussion. But my point is that was a very small, very small number. When I was at the Lincoln Project, I was telling people publicly, you probably remember this, the Bannon line was 4%. 4%. I was trying to get 4% of Republicans. And if I yeah. got 4%, we were going to win. And that's exactly where we ended up. And those 4% translated to about 1.2, 1.5 million Republicans across eight, nine states. That's all I was talking to. Yeah. I wasn't running Covita ads and Morning in America ads. Everyone thinks that's what the Lincoln Project was doing. And the progressives say, oh, my God, these ads didn't work. We did focus groups and testing and they weren't moving Republican voters. Well, duh. That's what we were trying to do. I had a 1,500, 1500 different ads in rotation going to 1.2 million Republicans across about a dozen states. Yeah, That's what I was trying to do. And everywhere we bought, we moved those voters. And what did we move them by? Between four and 6%. If I moved 4% of voters, I was gonna win the race. I knew it, I was telling people, and I said it since January, for eight months, I was telling people, if I move 4% of Republicans, the race is over, it's exactly what happened. 
That is exactly the approach that every campaign should be undertaking because using television and increasingly direct mail is a complete waste of resources. Mm. It's extremely inefficient resource allocation. Doesn't mean you shouldn't do some of it, but if you're not starting from the idea of what that swing is and hitting them where they live, which is not broadcast TV. It's not channel four in the LA media market. It's not really on radio much, although there's some of it. You can use Teeds and buy, and I'm getting in the weeds here, but you know, Pandora, Spotify, and some of these targeted ads, that's a great way to approach people. But online, 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 yeah. and get away from this idea of direct mail being the motivator because it's not moving votes. It hasn't for years. It's just what political practitioners have used. What the Lincoln Project proved was, proved quantifiably, is if you approach it from a very small segmented electorate, acknowledge that you're not going to win 85%, move the number that you need to, you can affect the outcome of a presidential race. You can certainly outcome the, the outcome of a, of a congressional race. And I would imagine you could do that much more efficiently from a, a spending standpoint for how much money you need to do that. A way, way more. It's, it's way, way, the efficiency of the spend is the way that we call it. Yeah. Is, is the way we term it is it's so much cheaper and so much more impactful uh, to move the needle because you're, you're being much more precise. There's no fat in the medium. You know yeah. exactly who the demographic is that you're talking to. And when you understand the voter model that you put together, I know I'm getting really in the weeds here. Sorry, I'm losing no, it's, it's, people. Listen. No, 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 absolutely not. But this, this is, this is the art of the modern campaign. This is what the Lincoln project redefined the modern campaign. And this is how it pisses off a lot of political consultants because they've made gazillions of dollars in direct mail and TV buys. That's how they make, that's how they buy second homes, right? That's how they make the real money. <laughs> But that's not how you win a campaign anymore. And we right. kind of exposed that. I mean, there were other problems that, you know, emanated later with the Lincoln Project. But the, 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 what we did show quantifiably is our whole audience, you know, became a culture, you know, a, you know, pop culture phenom, of course, an internet sensation. But we were only talking to 1.2 million voters across a dozen states. Yeah. And all I needed to do was move 4% of those. Flipping the, the you know, now proverbial 77,000, but now it became... What's the number? If if Biden lost about thirty or forty thousand in three key states, he would have lost the election. It was yeah. Uh, I mean, if you do look, Georgia, Georgia, Arizona, Wisconsin. Yeah, I mean that's it. That's it. That's the whole race. One of the reasons I keep on asking about California twenty five, obviously because I live here, but I think it's also, I hope it's not an anomaly in that it is a flippable seat in twenty twenty two. So yeah. So I mean, to your point, it it wouldn't even take four percent to switch. It would take 334 One. votes. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. it. Because remember in races, not to, be, to belabor the point, but a, a, a switched vote is really a two vote swing. If you, because you're not, you're taking one from one column, but you're adding to another. Yeah. Right. So if you move 5,000 votes off of Mike Garcia and add it to candidate X, it's actually a two vote swing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's not just a deduction of five. It's you're taking five from here, but you're putting five over here. Yeah. So those, 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 the small segment of swing voters are increasingly precious because there's so few, but they have an extraordinary outcome. They affect the outcome extraordinarily. Well, here's an even more um, in the weeds. Uh, maybe it's not, but what kind of candidate would it take? I'm obviously, I'm assuming that it would be a Democrat that would go up against Mike Garcia, even though it's, um, I don't know if this is the right terminology, but it's essentially, I think of it as an open primary where the top two um, winners of the primary end up running off in the in the general. But so assuming that it's a Democrat, 
what kind of Democrat can survive that primary to get to be in, in the top two spots, but still be still be acceptable to that four percent or to that, you know, to to persuadable voters so that they end up winning against the Mike Garcia. The key to understanding a district like that is to remind is to be mindful of the fact that it's a largely upscale, economically mobile constituency. What is going to offend and turn off most of the voters that are the few that are movable are going to be these cultural indicators. So for Republicans, I think the vote uh, along with Donald Trump was really, really bad for Garcia. I think that's going to damage him with enough voters to really hurt. What he's going to have to do to compensate for that is to tie the Democrats to the defunding the police movement, right? And the Black Lives Matter movement and kind of these quote unquote, you know, cultural extremist elements that did frighten voters away. It did. This is not just a California 25 thing. It's not just a California thing. Nationally, there is a reason why voters were voting for Joe Biden at the top and for Republicans down ticket. What they were saying was they were rejecting extremism from both parties. And where you saw these swings, the gaps the most, in other words, where Biden won and the Republican congressional candidate won down ticket, the reason for that is very easily explained. They were literally voting strategically. This happened in the Orange County seats. If you look at Orange County in 2016, when Trump was first elected, the congressional seats I'm talking about now. Yeah. There was a phenomenon we had never experienced before, which was people, Republicans were actually showing up and not voting at the top of the ticket, but they were voting for the Republican member of the House down below. And Republicans held on to those congressional seats. There were 11 of them, I think, or seven of them in the state at that time. And that became the big challenge for the midterms. People like me who had never seen that dynamic before thought that that was a remarkable uh, sign of resilience is that even though Republicans didn't like Trump, they were still voting for the Republican down ticket. Now, these seats got wiped out in the midterms. Right? This is where Katie Hill comes in. And the, the only reason that happens is because there were Republican defections. As people are saying, I'm not voting for a Trump or I'm not going to vote for anybody that's going to enable that kind of extremism. There were enough Republicans that said enough. Now, what happens by 2020, and you see in the special, of course, that's a different dynamic, but you see it in 2020, is the, that same voter comes back and says, look, I'm a Republican. I'm Republican-leaning. Yeah. And as long as I'm not convinced that this person's a Trumper, I'm I'm there for them. Okay. Yeah. Mainly because I'm concerned about the rising left. I'm really worried about the defund police. I'm really worried about the Medicare for all stuff. I'm really worried about the Green New Deal. I'm really worried about this rising leftist extremism. To say whether it's true or not, it, you know, I happen to believe that there are elements of it that are true, but that's the way voters are voting. They're voting against the extremism in both parties. That's very key to understanding CA25. It's very key to understanding all of the swing districts is they were voting against extremism, not voting for normalcy, not voting for their party. The votes that are actually moving are the votes that are moving against the extremism in both parties. And they have demonstrated that they are willing to vote for a Democrat or a Republican as long as they are protecting them from the extremes in the party that is in power and doing the wrong thing. It's such an impossible needle to thread, but it, it's been the case for a long time to be able to yep. appeal to the base. I would imagine that a Democrat needs to talk about Green New Deal and, or at least language sounding like that just in order to get through the primary, but then to not be tarred with that for the general to appeal to that that's that actual swing voter. Um, there's so much I wanted to get to, but we've already been go going for a while now. I wanted to ask you about 
the class you teach at, at USC, race class and partisanship. But uh, I, I have um, one more question other than that, and then two pieces of business. Do you, do you have a moment to talk about sure. your, your class? Okay. Well, and again, I'm not teaching at this moment, but because of the pandemic and COVID, and I was there as kind of a guest lecturer before the Lincoln Project, but it was one of the best things I've ever done. And I'm looking at some other opportunities right now to teach the same course. They, they gave me the benefit of, of actually designing the course. They said, we want you to teach here. What do you want to teach on? And immediately the intersection of race, class, and partisanship is really the defining dynamic of American politics and will be for the next 20 years. As I mentioned, and we talked a little bit about the multicultural, I, what I said was the party that can appeal to an aspirational multiracial working class will be the dominant party. Both of those parties have really significant struggles. So what the class is designed to do is sort of thread the needle in understanding is how does economic populism affect Latino voters? Why were they becoming more Trump and Trumpian and, and arguably more Republican? Why is that happening more with U.S. born Hispanic males than it is with U.S. born Hispanic females, for example? Mm. What is the problem with the white progressive constituency in the Democratic Party and its inability to reach out beyond its own sort of quadrant and start having a message that is much more broad based to achieve its own policy aims? What happened to the establishment Republicans? Why are they disappearing? Where do they go next? Because the Republican Party is becoming a more Trumpian home. And what intersection does, intersectionality does that have with their old policy matrix and the racial constituency of the Republican Party as it becomes a more homogenous white party? So it's really the intersections of the divides in both parties. Both parties have a populist problem. And I'm using that word specifically. I don't think populism is a good thing for democracy. The rise of Donald Trump, the rise of Bernie Sanders, these are all very bad indicators of a healthy democracy. I'm sure people will push back on the Bernie Sanders piece, but that's okay. You know, in Republican <laughs> country, they push back on the Donald Trump piece. These are both populist politicians that are not following the orthodoxy of their parties. In fact, both of them are attacking the leadership in their parties as a way to gain strength. This is a unique development when it's happening in both parties at the same time. And it's a sign that the right-left spectrum that you and I have grown up understanding has essentially tilted on its head. Yeah, You're not seeing government discussion of government between being about bigger or smaller government now. It's about haves and have-nots. It's about the oppressed and the, you know, the powerful. It's about the educated and the uneducated. It's those that are hopeful about America and those that have lost hope in America. So when you start to understand that language and that vernacular, you recognize very quickly that there is a racial component to that. There is a class, economic class component to that. And there is a partisan component to that. And the class explores the convergence of all of these dynamics. It's great. It's really encouraging that you're teaching, uh, you know, like you said, not, not at the moment, but the fact that you're teaching young people that, that are thinking about this or students that that are concerned about this it's, it's really encouraging that you're this is a lot of what we talked about so yeah. you know it's not just on podcasts it's not just on campaigns um, that you're really finding numerous outlets to grapple with important issues and look look at these things through a, a really informed lens a, an academic and scientific lens so um, I'm glad that you're out there. <laughs> I appreciate USC that. or wherever. Somebody is. At least somebody is. Yeah. You and mom. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, okay. So the last, technically the last question I have is, uh, do you have any questions for me? 
Uh, I'm fascinated by your professional background and um, your, you know, your deep interest in religion and politics. I mean, you're kind of a Renaissance man. So it's kind of what, I mean, how do you, how do you find time to, to, to thread the needle of all of these interests yourself? Well, the, it's become more accessible to do this. I, I've learned how to use Zoom. Is that what we're on? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've learned how to use Zoom. I've learned how to record. I've learned how to do a little bit of editing. And I'd be having these conversations anyway. But, you know, as recently as a little slightly over a year ago, I'd be having them with a friend over lunch. Um, you know, and, and my world, uh, my, my main profession, I've invested in a couple other businesses along the way. But my main profession was as a consultant in the entertainment industry. So I'd be having them with the heads of studios or um, folks who ran agencies, some of the, I mentioned some of the greatest marketers in the world, the folks that are opening Marvel movies, um, or it takes even more talent to open a movie that sucks, you know, but talking to these people and a lot of them, by the way, happen to be very engaged politically. A lot of them, as you probably, we have mutual friends, were the ones that were creating some of those spot ads that that Lincoln Project was putting out very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, a, at least three dozen ads I saw that were, were ones that friends of mine made from the entertainment industry. You know, but I've always been really interested in this stuff from a philosophical, theological standpoint, um, asking some existential questions. And I arrived at conclusions that were incredibly inconvenient a couple decades ago for, for, for my family, but um, also ironically and poetically have enriched relationships like with my father, who is my sometime co-host on this program. Uh, but then politically, you know, I'm, I've become, I've always been engaged, but over the last few years, I found the stakes because of my particular interest in, in theology, Christianity, um, the stakes have been raised a great deal. Um, and if there is any issue that I think, it, it's not an issue per se, that one that we're necessarily gonna be voting on, but we vote on it every day with the way we talk to each other. And that issue is, is just that. That issue is, it, you know, it's just the title of the program, talking politics and religion without killing each other. You know. Uh, in, in 2008, with the advent of a prominent figure like Sarah Palin, I thought, man, we're celebrating, we're celebrating a lot, like, she's arguing against being smart, you know, that like, somehow that's a bad thing. So, yeah, you know, we're just day to day interactions. Sorry, I, I, this is a longer answer than you bargained. No, for, this but, is what I was looking for. Yeah. I don't know if your viewers are, your listeners are, but <laughs> I'm looking for it. <laughs> yeah, just, you know, if I can get someone on here that I disagree with, and my dad and I just disagree on a lot of things or, or anybody, you know, Scott and I, uh, Scott Wilk and I disagree on specific issues, but we disagree on specific issues. What we don't disagree on is truth is important. Loving your children and, and, and raising children of character is important. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the fundamental things we completely agree on. I was having a conversation with a dear, dear friend, one of my best friends, and he just, he's a passionate supporter of Trump. And we've probably voted exactly differently in this last election. But, you know, we hung out for a couple hours yesterday, uh, really enjoyed each other's company. We have basic common interests. And I think that's more important than whatever radio show he's listening to in the afternoon to get them all fired up when he talks to me about some stuff. Yeah. I want to reclaim some of the space, man, so that we can talk to each other like neighbors, not like enemies firing at each other. Well, you're doing it, man. I love it. This has been a great opportunity and a great conversation. I'm glad we connected. Yeah. So the two more bits of pieces of business here, 
Um, you're involved with Developmentally Disabled Services of Sacramento, ddso.org. Could you tell yeah. us a little bit about that? Yeah, I'd love to. These are these are people that are developmentally disabled and they're adults. And what's been specifically difficult during the pandemic is we've we've uh, had to deal with an isolated clientele. We are trying to literally improve the quality of life with people. Everything from you know doing painting classes and dancing classes to teaching basic core you know life skills for people that are developmentally disabled. And it's a sense of community. And um, it has been really heartbreaking to see people um, who now have to be isolated. It's been tough on all of us. It's been particularly impactful for the developmentally disabled community. So I'm the president of the foundation. I have been involved with the group for about six years now, five or six years. I don't have any connection to the disabled. I just knew that there was a community need. They needed help. And that was my job was kind of raising the profile and, and, and trying to get people to both contribute and be engaged and just learn about it. And like everybody, like, like so many charities that have been you know hurt during this time, we've had to really change who we are um, in order to, to really just help people improve their quality of life. I mean, that's, that's literally what we do. We've got thousands of clients in the greater Sacramento area. Um, we were bringing them on site every day, uh, pre-pandemic. We've had to, to change our way of doing it. You can imagine a Zoom call doesn't quite work as well with the, with the developmentally disabled, but they still need human touch and human interaction. And so, yeah, we've been struggling extraordinarily, but that's that's a big part of, of what commit, what drives me, um, helping the community and doing my part. And um, if there's any, anybody out there that would uh, mind helping out, both contributing or volunteering uh, as we open up, look for the developmentally disabled. There's, there's a lot of need there. Developmentally Disabled Services of Sacramento, that's ddso.org. Yeah, doing our part. There's a concept in Judaism called tikkun olam. And if we all just do our part, we can uh, start to heal the world a little bit. And I, I really appreciate your work, your work there, ddso.org. Last but not least, Mike Madrid, how can we find you, Grassroots Lab, and any of your other work? Best place to find me is on Twitter. I'm um, at Madrid underscore Mike. Um, I've slowed down a little bit on social media since the campaign, but I still talk about the ideas that we've been visiting on regularly. It's probably a little bit more substantive than what we normally find on Twitter, but you'll also see me kind of take the gloves off and start fighting with folks too, if I feel the need. So, uh, in, you know, follow me uh, at Madrid underscore Mike and uh, engage in the conversation. Happy to talk to you. I think that's where we didn't, that's kind of might be where we met. Oh gosh. There. I can't remember where we met now, but yeah. I, Somewhere I along the way. entered through a few different doors. So I was going to, I was going to find you. Dude, you're too, you're too fascinating and too smart for me not to know. I, I really oh, just thanks. wanted to talk to you. Appreciate so this that. was an absolute, absolute pleasure. And uh, I learned a ton. I'm probably going to listen to this a few more times just so I can absorb all the, all the nerdy stuff that we talked about. So I really I love um, talking to you, Corey, just give me a call anytime and we'll continue the conversation, but appreciate the opportunity and look forward to it. You better be careful, man, because I'm going to take you up on that. Yeah, take me up on it. You know, I wouldn't <laughs> say it if I didn't mean it. This is awesome, Mike. I really appreciate it. Be well, okay? All right. Good talking to you. You too. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. Oh, 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 oh,